I'm Bill Keller. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Marshall Project, which is a nonprofit news organization focused on the criminal justice system. We'll be launching in six weeks or so uh, with a website, which I hope you'll all come visit. Um, I'm supposed to welcome you on behalf of the Texas Tribune uh, to the fourth annual Texas Tribune Festival, or Evan Fest as we know it. Um, and this panel is What's Next for Criminal Justice Reform? Um, we're part of a, a series of justice-related panel discussions, all of which will be in this room. Uh, when we're done uh, talking to you and answering your questions, there'll be a panel on Inside the Texas Supreme Court, followed by one on Texas and same-sex marriage, uh, and then a panel on um, Texas's uh, leading industry. It's called the State of the Death Penalty. Um, Let's see. What else am I supposed to tell you? Uh, well, I guess I should introduce the panelists. Be a good start. Um, those of you who came to see Abel Herrero are going to be disappointed. He was otherwise uh, occupied today and couldn't make it. Uh, Michael Morton was wrongfully convicted of the murder of his wife and spent nearly 25 years in prison before being exonerated in 2011 through the efforts of the Innocence Project and pro bono lawyer John Rayleigh and thanks to advances in DNA technology. He's the author of a recent memoir called Getting Life, An Innocent Man's 25-Year Journey from Prison to Peace. Vikrant Reddy is a senior policy analyst in the Center for Effective Justice at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, where he coordinates Right on Crime, the campaign, conservative campaign for criminal justice reform. He's authored several reports on criminal justice policy and is a frequent speaker and media commentator on the subject. Um, James White is state representative and vice chairman of the House Corrections Committee. Uh, in a very busy life, Mr. White has been an infantry officer, a public school teacher, a member of various Republican and conservative organizations, a football and basketball coach, and a cattle rancher. Thank you. Ana Yanez Correa is executive director of the Texas Criminal Justice Coalition. She was born in Mexico, immigrated to the U.S. at the age of 10, worked as a domestic worker with her mother until she entered college, proceeded to collect a long series of important prestigious degrees. Uh, and since 2005, she's been the ex executive director of TCJC, which unites an array of criminal justice practitioners, law enforcement groups, civil rights organizations, and other community members. Um, we're going to be here for about 60 minutes. We've got a little bit of a late start, but I think we can still go for 60 minutes. That will include 15 or 20 minutes at the end for questions. Uh, there will be microphones in the audience for you. Uh, and I'm supposed to remind you to silence your phones. Uh, if you want to tweet, the hashtag is TribuneFest. There's also a, a hashtag specific to this track, the justice track, called hashtag TTFJustice. So I want to start, uh, I'm an optimist by nature, but I want to start with a question um, that's a little pessimistic. We're, I think everybody who's come at this hour of the morning is well aware of uh, the fact that the United States leads the world in incarceration, both in raw numbers and in percentage of population, with the possible exception of North Korea, where we don't have valuable data, but that's not particularly a club you want to be in. Um, Politicians of both parties uh, across the ideological spectrum have, in recent years, um, 
described the incarceration rates in America as a waste of money and a waste of human potential and human life uh, and have uh, endorsed various measures to reduce prison populations. Rick Perry, the governor of Texas, has been one of the earliest and most outspoken in this vein. And for three years, the uh, incarceration, uh, the number of Americans incarcerated has declined until last week when the Bureau of Justice Statistics released the numbers for 2013 and showed that after three years of decline, the numbers of incarcerated in America have, have, have begun to go up again, um, uh, including in Texas. Uh, in Texas, from 2012 to 2013, the new, new admissions into prisons were up 1.5%. The numbers released from prison were down almost 10%. Uh, and Texas still is very close to leading the nation in the um, numbers of people incarcerated per 100,000 population. So has prison reform hit some kind of a wall? What should we make of those numbers? I think we have to be mindful about what um, the federal government is measuring. Exactly. Uh, there's, you know, I've actually been asked quite a bit, and I thought that the, the numbers were going down, what's, what's going on. So um, the thing is, is that they're counting two different things. You know, in terms of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, we're actually below by 1,000 individuals. But they're counting in their numbers uh, people in um, ISFs, intermediate sanction facilities. They're counting in their numbers people in safe peace, uh, which is treatment within prisons. And they're also counting individuals that are in community um, corrections that have um, that have individuals in facilities um, for treatment. So both numbers are correct, um, but it's about the definition that they use. Now, with but that, they use the same definition in 2012 and 2011. And then and they have to, and they have to, they have to do that. But there's more people when you look at the numbers in TDCJ. More people are entering ISFs. More mm. people are entering SAPs. More people are entering. Um, in probation, in our 121 probation departments, they have facilities that um, deal with um, substance abuse. So both, so when you break down the numbers in terms of TDCJ, we're still we're still below, um, you know, a, a, a certain group of like a some a, num, a, sub, um, a specific number. Do, do you so, see? What sure. I mean? So you would describe this as on the right track. I would describe, I still describe us as continuing at the right track. Now, with that being said, there's still a lot of work to be done. There's still a lot of people that don't need to be in prison. And, and there's still a lot of reforms on their way to continue to minimize that. Um, and again, both numbers in our interpretation are, are correct. It's just that they're counting individuals in safe peace and, and ISS. And, and Vikrant can articulate this better. No, actually, I think he explained that statistical distinction perfectly. And that number that the federal government is using, which is different than the, the I guess, the Bureau of Justice statistics, that figure uh, you know, calculates different things than the one that the Legislative Budget Board here in Texas calculates. But the one that the federal government is using is including programs like the Safe Peas you talk right. about that we, we actually want to encourage. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to put people in programs like that rather than uh, in just uh, traditional prisons. Mm -hmm. Well, it's no doubt that we're, we're watching and holding a lot of people. Um, about 150,000 or so in real prison incarceration units, 160,000, uh, I guess, on probation uh, in some form uh, locally. 
and then about 87,000 uh, on parole. So you, we're watching a lot of people and have a lot of people under some form of adjudication. But I, I believe the, the, the two nice people here on, on the panel are, are correct. It's where we have them and, and uh, what we're doing with them. But at the end of the day, uh, we do have a lot of laws in the, in the country and in the state of Texas. And um, we have people charged locally with enforcing. And, uh, and I would say that I think we're going on the right track. But uh, I think in our society that values liberty and virtue, uh, you know, having one person uh, incarcerated is, is not an optimal scenario. Okay. Well, maybe we should, since we're here to talk about the future of criminal justice reform, we should talk about what actually constitutes reform or what is the aim of reform. Is it just to make the system more humane? Is it to make it more fair? Is it to save money? How do, what's the rationale? What's the motive for fixing the criminal justice system? Well, it's public safety. It's mm -hmm. none of the things you mentioned. And those, those things are secondary. They're important, but they're secondary. The main thing is public safety. And that's what I say to everybody that I talk to these issues about. I say, you know, we care about outcomes for offenders. We care about, uh, you know, the restoration of victims. We care about... Um, we care about the racial dimensions of this problem. There are so many different aspects here, but fundamentally, we care about public safety. And the problem is that for so many years, our perception of public safety was just lock as many people up as possible and you'll be more safe. That's been deeply flawed because so many of these people will eventually come out, they will live next door to you and me, and if they can't put their lives back together, uh, we've created neighborhoods and environments that are obviously and inherently going to be uh, very unsafe. The other panelists agree? But yeah, I mean, that's why we have such a broad coalition. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, we just recently launched the Smart on Crime Coalition, which is composed of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, the Texas Association of Business, Goodwill Industries, mm -hmm. and um, NACLU and us. And we're all saying the same thing for different reasons. Mm -hmm. For different reasons, but we are all wanting the same outcome. Mm -hmm. and, and every day, I mean, we get inundated by um, by email saying, how do we join? And we're talking about sheriffs, we're talking about you know, judges that are tired of seeing um, the same people over and over that would benefit from treatment programs and more options. Um, obviously people that have been in the system and the family members, so there's, there's, um, there's some movement towards approaches that will accomplish what Vikrant was saying, public safety outcomes, and that will also save money. Uh, from our perspective, we also want to have healthy communities and healing mm -hmm. um, so, that, um, so that survivors and victims can also get you know, what they need and so that we can minimize the impact that criminal justice systems have on the, on the children. You know, right now there's 50,000 children who have loved ones mm -hmm. um, you know, in prison and they also go you know, uh, through, the, through the whole turmoil and, and process. So. Maybe each of you could give me one or two or three examples of actual specific things that you would do if you had carte blanche to fix the criminal justice Well, system. one of the things that are, is really going to be coming up next session that has broad consensus is the issue of stopping the uh, over-criminalization of our children. And one of the topics that everybody's going to be talking about next session is going to be raising the age of jurisdiction from 17 to 18. And that's gotten broad consensus. Um, and, and we're looking at this as, as a three-prong approach. Um, obviously not over-criminalizing children um, that do not need to be involved in the system, right-sizing the system by looking at diversions, by looking at 
you know, minimizing the number of people with substance abuse, mental health problems, and we're also looking at strengthening the workforce. Um, so making, and, and giving them the tools to live responsibly, expanding housing options, um, fixing um, the issue of non-disclosure. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on, uh, but that, those are things that we really are, are looking uh, forward to next session. Well, uh, yes, I, I, I'm sort of going in the same trajectory as Anna there is. Um, I'm, they're still working on me on the issue of uh, raising the age um, uh, for uh, from, from 17 se- to 18. From 17, 18. I'm, I'm still thinking, thinking through that. Uh, it's, it's important, I think, uh, when we look at reform, that we enact provisions that are uh, research-based, you know, they're, they're data-driven, quantitatively driven. Um, we, we also need to ensure that we are uh, listening to, to the local officials that are probably on the ground enforcing uh, these uh, various provi- provisions. But the overcriminalization of our youth is something we definitely need to look at. Uh, next session, I would like to have a discussion about truancy. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, the way we're doing it here in Texas based on some narratives that I've seen over the past few months, if it's uh, good public policy to uh, round up kids and parents uh, and you know, holding them and incarcerating them for missing school. Um, not oversimplifying this, if you can uh, pick a child up and, and take them to prison or, or jail for uh, going, not going to school, you could just take them to school. Uh, that's just uh, probably oversimplified. So that is definitely an issue uh, that, that I would want to look at next session. Who, who are the obstacles to reform? Well, I, I don't know if there are any obstacles. Uh, again, the, I think it's incumbent upon those of us that claim to be reformers is to, one, make sure that we are expanding individual liberty through maintaining public safety, that whatever reforms or proposals that we're bringing to the legislature actually do that and that they're quantitatively research-based. The great thing about corrections is you have uh, the luxury of having very large sample sizes. So you can uh, look at various things, look at various variables, and you should be able to make some pretty good assumptions based on quantitative data and not just opinions. So it's, it's incumbent on, on us, again, to have all these models and have all this, the, the, the data and then be able to present it uh, to various policymakers. Well, let me, let me suggest some obstacles okay. that have been identified by others. Okay. Um, prison guard unions, uh, more oh, no, or less ground. Huh? Prison guard unions help us here. They have been supportive of no, I'm talking about nationally, not, oh, just, nationally, not just yes. Texas. In nationally. California, in New York, uh, they Illinois. have Illinois. Yeah. The prison guard unions have been a, a force That's for the status quo. That's true in quo. other states. Mm-hmm. Uh, prosecutors, uh, whose performance tends to be measured by convictions, sometimes convictions of people who don't deserve to be convicted. Okay. Uh, the third, some people identify as a culprit, the private prison industry and all the private mm-hmm. industries yeah. that feed off prison by providing health care, food services, and so on, uh, and who have a vested interest in keeping those prisons populated. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how do you react to that well, lineup of Well, let, let's, take the, let's take the district attorneys. You know, uh, they're elected, 
And we need to get out into our communities and talk about these reforms. Uh, someone running for district attorney that, that probably shouldn't be the only metric uh, that they run on is uh, how many convictions or, or years of convictions you can rack up. Uh, that, that, so that's, that's an issue of informing and uh, educating the electorate. Now, these other issues about uh, prison guards and, and, and the so-called prison industry, again, that's where it, where it comes to my job and having the data because the budget is a finite uh, scenario and uh, we need to be more efficient. We need to be doing more with less, whether that be corrections or education or transportation. So we shouldn't have these other you know, external forces, uh, you know, driving the budget for their own self-interest. Okay. Michael, you did 25 years in prison for a crime you didn't commit. Uh, you don't seem terribly angry about it, uh, not, certainly not as angry as I'd be, um, but do you see your case as a, a, a fluke, as just a, a really, really big piece of bad luck, or do you see it as reflecting some s systemic problems in the way we deal with crime and allegations of crime? Well, statistically, it was a fluke. Um, there, it's, there are not, there, I don't you can say there's a wave out there of people inside prison, but it happens. There's, statistical models say maybe two, as many as 4%, and in Texas we're dealing with 150,000 roughly speaking people. So um, it's a bit of a fluke, but it does point to some flaws. Uh, I have to support what you just said a while ago. You just mentioned the number one job is public safety. I had a conversation with a warden not too long ago, and he said he has a job. is to keep the guys inside the fences, and that's it. And we want to do a lot of things for the prisoners. We want to educate them. We want to introduce them to cognitive intervention, treat their drug problems, their alcohol problems, their, their sexual abuse problems. All of those things are nice, and they have good intent. Um, but from what I saw over a quarter of a century, is every program is gamed by the convict as an avenue to get out. And the only thing that actually works is it when you try to change behavior. The only thing that I have seen work is when you try to change the inside of a person. Some of the religious programs, some of the internally focused programs. Um, until you change the man, you're not really going to have any long-lasting effects on the person. Mm -hmm. And in, during your 25 years, how would you describe the efforts to actually rehabilitate the people you served with? Um, minimal, because the motivation is to get out and to try to find a program that you can get into that you can work with that so you can get out. And um, like I say, these programs are addressing surface issues. And until you go to the cause, the symptoms are relevant. One of the, to my mind, most promising developments that's happened in recent years, and it's actually one of the reasons that this subject interested me enough to leave the New York Times after 30 years and, and uh, run a criminal justice journalism venture, is that there is an overlap now between left and right. Uh, on this panel yeah. itself, in Congress, you have Rand Paul and Cory Booker mm -hmm. uh, co-sponsoring legislation. You have Newt Gingrich, uh, Rick Perry, a lot of conservatives embracing at least aspects of the, criminal, of the notion of criminal justice reform. Maybe coming at it from different perspectives, um, uh, but 
willing to line up on specific programs. Um, however, um, I think that only goes so far. I mean, for example, I, I believe your organization has a notional ambition to reduce prison populations by 50%. Mm -hmm. Everybody right and left can agree on the nonviolent, low-level drug offender. Uh, that's low-hanging fruit, uh, although a lot of those people are still in jail. Um, but to get to a goal like 50%, you're going to have to deal with some people who are actually guilty of violent crimes. Uh, well, actually, in Texas, uh, we're about 50% for nonviolent, non-sexual-aided offenders. And we're spending $4 million a year um, at, at the minimum, oh, a lot more than that, for 50, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, so when I say 50% in Texas standards, I am talking about the low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's not something I'm proud to, to say. It's not something that I'm proud to say that Texas uh, locks up a lot of uh, people that could be more effectively, um, you know, helped uh, in the community. And, um, and I agree also with uh, Mr. Morton in terms of we've got to have systems that address the inner core of why people end up um, in the system. I completely, 100%, you know, I agree with, with that. Um, and so right now we're just touching the surface. And, uh, you know, our, our, our partners that have been, we've been working for a long time, you know, are, are really moving towards towards that. So, so yes, I am I, confident that we will get to the point when the prisons will only be, are only going to be used for the ones that really genuinely pose a threat to public safety. I, I am an optimist. Nikrant, would you or, or Right on Crime as an organization buy into the, the goal of 50% reduction of prison populations? Well, Anna said earlier that we approach these issues from different directions, but we somehow end up at the same place. I think this is a great example of that. I don't, for a second, have uh, in mind any kind of target figure uh, for incarceration levels, I do think it would be nice to try and drop crime rates. That's, that's our real concern. But the way that uh, we view these issues at Right on Crime is that if you take a low-level nonviolent offender and you house them in a uh, secure facility next to somebody who is a hardened criminal, they're almost certainly going to come out learning all kinds of bad <coughs> habits and being worse than they started. We will have all paid for that, incidentally. And uh, you've just diminished public safety considerably. So I think we are uh, you know, very much focused on crime rates. I know Anna's focused on crime rates, too. She's additionally focused on you know, levels of incarceration. We're both talking about different things, but we both uh, have identified the same solution to these two problems that we're looking at. And, and that's how we end up getting the same place. And I think that actually fundamentally is the reason for this interesting uh, consensus uh, on the left and the right right now is that you have two sides that have not had to compromise their core philosophical vision at all. They're both sticking to first principles and yet uh, meeting in the same place. Um, I absolutely agree with you that this is a, a, a heartening spectacle to see because there are so few areas of public policy where right and left can find any common ground, uh, and, and it's, it's a polarized country. But I, I still want to test a little bit what the limits of that convergence are and might be. For example, how far, if, if you were designing a conservative criminal reform agenda, how far would you go in legalizing or decriminalizing drugs? Well, you, you, I know you don't speak for the entire conservative no, no. population of America. But. Wow. 
No, I don't speak for the entire conservative population of America, but I think I can speak pretty broadly for right on crime and for many of our signatories uh, to the right on crime statement of principles. We're not in favor of drug legalization. We always get asked, what about marijuana? We're not in favor of marijuana legalization either. Uh, there are a lot of different views here. You know, some people are in favor of full drug legalization. Some are in favor of just marijuana. Some are in favor of medical marijuana. There's a whole spectrum of positions here. Um, and it's hard to find agreement. But the one area we have managed to find agreement on is the idea that when somebody uh, is addled with a drug problem, the absolute wrong first response is to look at incarceration. Treatment and rehabilitation options, which cost uh, in our state just a, a fraction of what incarceration costs. I mean, a, a traditional probation program is something like $3 per day versus $50 a day for incarceration. You could, you could even scale up the level of, uh, of engagement with that offender uh, and spend more money and, and still be just a tiny, tiny fraction of what incarceration would cost. So you Except have... that it's not about the money, right? It's, well, <laughs> fundamentally, it's, as I said, it is about public safety. And, um, and if you do these things, you, you will find that you have safer communities. So, mm-hmm. no, it's not all about the money. Um, it, it is principally about public safety. But like I said, there's no doubt that those secondary issues play a role, whether it's cost, whether it's racial dimensions, whether it's offender outcomes, all of these things. So, um, yeah, in in terms of drug legalization, no, we're not in favor of drug legalization, but we are. uh, Here's how I would put it. I always tell people I don't want to end the war on drugs, but I do want to change the battle tactics. The battle tactic has been incarceration for a long time. The new battle tactic, a better one, ought to be treatment and rehabilitation. Most conservatives now will agree with that. And and, yes, we'll... Um, my district, my particular district in East Texas, uh, when I look at what my people do in order to make a living, uh, they drive log trucks, they work in refineries, work in small light manufacturing uh, entities. So I don't know if it's practical for me as a member of the legislature to champion um, legalization of drugs, because in many of these instances, you have to take a drug test, you, you have to be sober. So that, so that segues me into something else here. When we're looking at this issue, it's, it's just not looking at the correctional piece and how many people we have locked up. We can probably get to 50%. We also have to look at education. You know, if you're concerned about this, you're looking at education, you're looking at the viability of our economy because uh, the, state, the data shows if our people are educated, if they have good, high-paying, middle-class jobs, uh, then they're not getting involved in our criminal justice system. So you have to look at the, the, the whole thing. It's like breakfast in the morning. You just don't show up with just your toast. You show up with your toast, your orange juice, your, your cereal, and, 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 and everything. And grits in Texas. Well, I, was, <laughs> I wanted to say that, but in grits as well. coffee, too. And coffee, too. Yes, sir. And, and the idea. One of the, one of the best websites yeah. on criminal and, justice reform is called yes. Grits for Breakfast. Right. right. And yes. the idea, as Mr. Morton stated, is the, the faith component. You know, if you, if you have a lot of churches, you may not need a whole lot of police, the whole, that, that, that scenario. So it's all of that. And then, so we, it's not about getting people out, it's also about stopping people from getting in. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, we also want to be efficient and fiscally responsible. With all of these programs, we have to hire people to run them. With many of these faith-based programs, volunteers want to do them. Mm -hmm. Almost everybody that addresses these sort of issues on the inside, they come in from the outside, they're not state employees. 
They're qualified, certified volunteers. Well, let me pick up on that for a second. I mean, everybody admires volunteers who work in prisons, and there, and there are an awful lot of groups uh, in Texas and New York, across the, across the country. So earlier this year, the governor of New York um, proposed uh, to include $1 million in the corrections budget, uh, which is a multi-billion dollar budget, uh, for uh, college degree programs that the state would sponsor inside prisons in New York State. He got clobbered, uh, not just by Republicans, but by Democrats as well, who said, you know, how, how can the state be paying uh, for ed to educate these criminals when I can't afford to send my kid to college? Uh, and he backed down. He's, he's going to try to do the program through uh, philanthropic organizations. But, the, but doesn't the state have some responsibility? I mean, yes, hooray for the volunteers, but doesn't the state have some responsibility to protect us, to protect our safety by providing education, job training, GEDs at least, some reentry, um, or is that all? Do you, do you all sort of see that as a, something that that comes from the philanthropic community? I think what you just outlined was flawed. Um, mm -hmm. how I say? The fact that we're all here um, talking about reform didn't just happen out of thin air. There was a strategy that began as early as 2003, um, organizing, talking to unlikely allies, getting the trust, getting to know people, to ask for those types of reforms. So I think what the, the issue is that we as a society have got to redefine what success means when it comes to public safety outcomes. And when um, right now we just look at recidivism for the most part, um, we are uh, failing to see that what the potentiality of our systems. So, you know, healthy communities, healthy, thriving communities without violence mm -hmm. would be the, you know, this is what we want. So in the scenario that you, that you just um, laid out is that some reforms might, um, if, they, if you don't have the, strategic um, rollout with media, with messaging, with, you know, unlikely allies, then of course you're going to get clobbered because you have to have, because a lot of it involves the cultural shift. Mm -hmm. So um, that's why you will see a trend in Texas that it's nice and easy here in Texas, slowly, you know, thought out, we have consensus, we talk about it, we start, you know, build the momentum and... Um, and it's incremental because uh, Texas has come a long way from being the state as, as being known as, you know, the tough on crime to now transitioning to, to smart on crime. And um, Governor Perry is testament to that. He didn't start being smart on crime. He was very much, like everybody else, very tough on crime. And then he transitioned his stances um, to, to now being one of the, you know, a, a spokesperson for it. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of it is messaging, like everything else, and marketing and mm -hmm. strategy, and that's what, it, that's what it takes to get something like that you know, to pass and mm -hmm. to go through without being um, you know, right. beat down. You're, you're absolutely right that the, the Governor Cuomo failed to do that kind of groundwork uh, mm -hmm. before he, he sprung his first. program. Uh, he did it kind of spontaneously in a, in a speech to lawmakers and, and uh, yes. But there is, a, there is still a, a, a matter of principle here uh, involved. 
whatever program you, you do, you want to roll it out carefully, you want to build a coalition and an alliance. But ultimately, isn't it worth the state investing state money uh, to rehabilitate uh, and facilitate re-entry of, uh, of convicted felons into society. Well, absolutely. I mean, it, it's one of the charges of the Texas Department of Criminal, Criminal Justice uh, beyond right. public safety is the idea that one day uh, these men and women will be our neighbors. They will reintegrate re into our society, and we have a responsibility to make sure that reintegration is effective. Uh, what but it, we also have to be practical as well. Um, you know, we need to, when, when we look at the rehabilitation program, we need to ensure that it's suited for that particular offender or person. And uh, maybe uh, vocational training is the ideal track for that person, maybe college training. Uh, so you, got to, you, just, you have to look at a lot of things. But directly to your question, the answer is yes. Okay. Uh, Vikrant mentioned earlier, uh, I think you used the phrase, the racial component. That's 60 mm percent -hmm. of the people incarcerated in America's prisons and jails are either African-American or Hispanic. Um, a lot of people, I expect the, quite a few people in this audience have read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, which frames this as first and foremost a civil rights issue. Uh, she would call it, I think, the civil rights issue of our time. Is it a civil rights issue? No, you're asking me. A, I'm asking you. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, it's it's a it's an it's an issue of individual liberty of those that are not committing crimes, and then the public safety, which moves toward that. That's why when you're in this business. You're concerned about education, and you're concerned about the vitality of our economy. In many of these neighborhoods, and I think you're going to see some uh, very interesting research come out of Texas Public Policy Foundation on, on poverty and, and how it affects certain communities. So in many of these communities um, where we have not worked very effectively in making sure that their economy is, 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 is strong, their educational system is not only efficient but, but effective, then you have these outcomes. So uh, in some instances, you may say it's a civil rights issue. I think it's an uh, issue of expanding this American promise of, of liberty and prosperity. McCrant, do you want to? Try, try that question? Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I think, you know, with Right on Crime, we don't focus a lot on, on the racial questions. And I guess the reason for that is that um, it, it is true that there is a, a real troubling racial dimension to criminal justice issues. But it's also true that there's a troubling racial dimension uh, in our education system. There's a troubling racial dimension when it comes to health care outcomes. So sorry. To healthcare outcomes uh, in the United States, you know, it's it's just obvious that because of unique features of our history for for centuries, uh, we have a lot of uh, unusual problems with race in the United States. But when you identify the criminal justice system as particularly problematic, I think we're sort of missing the big picture. So the way Right on Crime approaches these issues is we say, 
to go back to something I said just a moment ago, drug treatment and rehabilitation. It doesn't really matter whether that individual is black or Hispanic or Native American, Indian American like me or white. These people will benefit from these kinds of policies. So we are trying to push policies that we think would affect and help the entire population. And that's just the lens through which we see these problems. I mean, the truth of the matter is that when you ask questions about race in Texas, people, um, some people who might not, who might be on, you know, we, we don't know to support it or not support it, will, will, shine, will shine away. We conducted a poll um, in 2003 to gauge where people were in criminal justice reforms, and when we brought up the issue of race, um, they became more punitive. So from a, um, so, you know, what, what do you do with that as an advocate? Uh, when, what do you do with that as an advocate who does believe there are racial disparities, does believe there is, based on the data and the numbers, um, you know, enforced, you know, that police officers target certain communities more than others, you know, that there is bias, that there is, you know, inherent racism within the system. Do you lead with those talking points in Texas and expect to pass a law? No, you don't do that. You focus on the things that will bring consensus, that will not isolate individuals, because number one priority is getting your bills passed. Now, with that being said, the discussions have to happen. People have to talk about it. We've got to begin the healing process of communities that have been torn, uh, torn apart by centuries of racism and, and, uh, and lack of understanding. And you see it with, within every single county, regardless of what county it is. So the question you're asking is, is a very important question. We do have to talk about it. But do we lead with the race um, issue? No, it doesn't pull well. And, and for us as advocates who are trying to get bills passed, you use arguments that speak to the broader audience, um, but still have the results that have a positive impact uh, for the, be the better populations that we're trying to to help. Okay. You know, Bill, I want to say one other thing about that. In recent American history, a lot of the efforts that were directed at addressing the racial problems in the criminal justice system have backfired profoundly. So as one small example, you could look at crack cocaine disparities. There was a thought that although cocaine is doing terrible things to white communities, crack is doing vastly worse things to black communities. And so the, the penalties for, uh, for crack possession and crack use uh, went through the roof, and the people who promoted those penalties and uh, those very punitive penalties in many cases were people in these troubled black communities who were worried about what crack was doing. I think just about all of them now would recognize that that was probably a mistake. Uh, mandatory minimums are another great example of this. There was a legitimate problem uh, years ago where people would say, okay, a, a black offender and a white offender come before a judge, and the judge has extraordinary discretion to determine uh, how to sentence each of these people. Uh, we're finding that he's uh, sentencing the black individuals more punitively than he is the white individuals. Let's institute mandatory minimum sentences so that they're um, uh, standardized across the board. Of course, that just set into play this really troubling incentive system when people would run for office, mm -hmm. where people could look at the mandatory minimum and say, I can be even tougher and raise that minimum by a year. And then somebody comes along four years later and says, I'll raise it by yet another year. And I think, again, all the people who would have pushed for those mandatory minimums because they thought they were resolving a racial problem in the criminal justice system would now reflect and say that was probably misguided. Excuse me. I saw some of the better approaches on the inside. When you didn't target a group, you followed kind of like, like you say, the Martin Luther King, the looking for 
colorblind approach. And this works because it doesn't affect just a particular racial community. Criminal justice affects everybody, mm-hmm. even though very few members of our society actually have contact with it. But it does affect everybody. Mm-hmm. So trying to balkanize us doesn't help. Yeah. Right. It still uh, needs to be talked about, though. I'm sorry? Oh, yeah. It still needs to be talked about, um, you know. But that's just not a yes. message you, you lead with here. Um, before I open it up to questions from the floor, um, let, me, let me raise one other question. There's a whole panel on it later this afternoon, uh, but I can't resist since I'm in what could <laughs> accurately be described, I think, as the world capital of capital punishment. Mm. Um, and one thing that's, that's off, that I've often puzzled over is that conservatives in particular who worry about the powers of the state and the growth of the state uh, and its role in our lives uh, are willing to cede to the state the power to execute people. Uh, uh, why is Texas the, lead, the national leader and some would argue the world leader in capital punishment? Why? Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you know, Bill, and, and not getting too professorial on this, the issue is this here. Uh, the, the, the death penalty um, is a tool that we'll, we allow. We, it's a tool on the table for our local governments because it's local county governments that are imposing this sentence. But it is a tool that we give local DAs and juries uh, for some very, very serious uh, crimes. Um, as a conservative, and you know, you 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 bring you say we're concerned about the powers of, of government and expansive powers of government. Obviously, I'm I'm con- very concerned about that. Um, but but it's the idea that uh, you have government. And if government exists, as some of us believe, to expand individual liberty, then you can, I think you can make the case in some extremely selective cases, um, you, would give, you would allow government that discretion in order to um, uh, maintain public safety. But it is a tool that uh, a tool of discretion that we, we provide to our local governments under the laws of Texas. You're sitting next to a man who spent 25 years in prison for a crime he, he didn't commit. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's reasonable to assume that there are people on death row in Texas who didn't commit the crime? Well, uh, I think what it's reasonable to, for, for me to assume is that we, we have laws and we have a procedure and just as a footnote, uh, as, as vice chair, I, I have actually went to a um, uh, execution process, uh, actually looked and viewed it from beginning to the end um, in, in, in Huntsville. Um, so what, 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 I would, what I would say, what's reasonable for me is that we have a process. We have a process that involves appeals and... Uh, that process, uh, if allowed to, it works, and um, it, it works as it, as it should under the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of Texas. So you find it 
hard to believe that there would actually be somebody on death row in Texas well, who was, well, who's, well, who's that, you know, Well, it, it's not, you know, I, look, looking at all the cases that are on death row, um, and I haven't had the opportunity to read all of them, look at all the evidence, talk to all of the attorneys involved, uh, I don't think it's appropriate or for me to say uh, if it's reasonable for me to believe that or there's an individual at least uh, that's wrongfully convicted. However, um, I have supported and will continue to support those provisions that add transparency into the process and make sure that it is working in accordance with the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of Texas. Look, n nobody can say that Texas is soft on crime. I mean, you just made a point. It's like Texas kills a lot of people, the, the, the legislature. From our perspective, I don't trust government enough to make the decision that, that who they are killing, because to me, you know, it's, you know, you're killing a person uh, in the name of you know, public safety and deterring, deterrence. And we know that killing a person doesn't deter somebody from committing another crime. Um, you know, there's, there's efforts to take a look at that issue from a wide range of perspectives. But it's it's part of the it's part of the Texas culture that you have seen that you know continues to be there. That's why we know that nobody can say that Texas is a soft on crime state when you look at the final outcomes. No, nobody, um, will say nobody that. can say that because that's that's just not the case. You know. Um, we do have a microphone here and a microphone there if anybody would like to come up and ask a question. Or you can yell it out from your seat and I'll do my <laughs> best to <laughs> make sure everybody... <laughs> now, you, wait, 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 wait a second. Let's give somebody else a shot. Try to be polite. Okay. Good morning, I have a question. Uh, I've really enjoyed hearing your, your reflections on reform. Uh, to this point, though, I haven't uh, heard any mention of the growing proportion of youth and adults in our justice systems with serious mental health challenges. Um, I'm interested in where you think reform should go regarding that, particularly uh, violent offenders with serious mental health challenges. Anybody want to take that? Well, um, she's absolutely right that... Um, the mental health component of this, uh, this problem is tremendous. We're here in Texas, which means that we're in the state that has the largest mental health facility in the country because it's the Harris County jail system. And uh, it's incredibly troubling that a jail would I have think Cook decision. County in Chicago makes the same claim. Do but, they make the same claim? Uh, maybe the Lo Los Angeles County Bill, jail is well. not here today. bigger in Texas, you know that. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, this is not something we want to brag about uh, uh, being incredibly big. It is a, it is a serious problem, but... I guess, the, you know, the one note of optimism that I can offer is that, as you were pointing out, there's become 
there's an emerging left-right consensus on these issues. There is a new uh, institute, the Meadows Mental yes, Health Meadows. Institute up in Dallas. That uh, And they're members of our Smart and Conference. Yes, they are. And this is, this is their charge in the upcoming legislative session is to expand things like mental health courts and opportunities to, uh, to treat mental health problems in the offender population. So uh, given the, the incredibly prominent Texans who are involved with that, that group, who have a lot of influence, I am optimistic. This side. Good morning. Uh, Considering some of the goals some people on this panel have for the criminal justice system of reducing prison populations, of moving to a more uh, rehabilitative system, I was wondering what role private prisons have in the future of our criminal justice system. Uh, And is there an inherent uh, conflict of interest in these kind of systems that profit in uh, systems that have high recidivism rates? We as an organization, um, Texas Criminal Justice Coalition, have always fought for the expansion of privatization of uh, prisons. And uh, we've done that because they um, hire lobbyists that kill reform that will take away their business. And we've been very successful by partnering with the correctional officers. And actually, um, CLEAT has been, the police union has been another entity that another untapped, unlikely ally that has been very much against privatization of prisons. Um, Their interest now lays so much on the federal side in terms of privatizing for detention um, facilities for immigrants that their focus has not been so strong here in Texas. You still see them around, but it hasn't been so strong here in Texas. Um, And so we're going to, we need to keep, you know, an eye on that. Um, and I think Vikran can speak to the letter that uh, the private prisons were sending. Uh, at least Mark Levin always tells us about, the, the, you know, the yeah. private prisons were sending around the state saying, you know, we'll run your systems, but you have to guarantee, you know, I think it was like 90% uh, of, of occupancy, occupancy rate. Mark likes to like say, hotels. I think Marriott would ask for the same guarantee. <laughs> right. so, so even in that case, you know, you have, uh, you know, you, you, I don't see it happening. Um, given all of the support uh, for reforms, because we know it's just not, it's not what we need. Do you mind if I chime in on that, though? Because I see it a, a little differently than Anna. I think there's a, a pragmatic answer to the question and a philosophical answer. So the pragmatic answer is that it's a red herring because something like 93% of all the prisoners in the country are housed in public facilities. Only 7% are in private institutions. But the philosophical answer is that Once you acknowledge that you have to have prisons in a society, some people have to be housed there. Surely we would all think that people convicted of double homicide uh, would need to be in prisons. At that point, you've acknowledged that you have to have people to manage those prisons. Those people will always have an interest in expanding the number of prisons and expanding the amount of incarceration. If they uh, come from the private sector, they will hire lobbyists and they they will push to expand that business. If they're in the public sector, if they are labor unions, they will do what they did in California in 1994. They will go before the legislature and lobby in favor of three strikes you're out because mm-hmm. it's a maximum employment uh, position for prison guard unions. So this is, this is a really unsatisfying answer, but the reality of it is that we have to, we have to get good people in our legislatures who, who exercise oversight because they know that anybody involved in the prison industry, be it public or private, will want more incarceration. Absolutely. That's right. One question is whether the private, privately run prisons get the same level of oversight and accountability that the public prisons do. Another one is that they, of course, lobby for these contracts by cutting costs, by pro- right. promising to cut costs. 
which gives them an incentive not only to keep the cells full, mm -hmm. but to make sure that these, all these luxury extras like education uh, or decent health care um, are uh, cut to the bone. Mm -hmm. Well, you use the word incentive there. I think that's the most important word. And, and Representative White, you could perhaps speak more to this, but what I've been uh, really encouraged by is that members of the legislature, at least here in Texas and in several other states, are looking at performance-based measures. That's what they're concerned with. That's, that's how they're telling these, uh, these prison operators they're going to be graded, that they want to look at offender outcomes. And when you start uh, grading and evaluating these facilities based on the education outcomes, restitution paid to victims, uh, and things like that, I think, um, I think that's, that's the proper incentive structure. Well, I, just from a practical point, um, compared to some levels in the past, uh, prison population in Texas is down. Uh, not only have we closed some mm -hmm. public facilities, uh, we have ended some contracts with private facilities. Yes. Um, thank you all for your very thoughtful comments. One issue that hasn't come up yet, and I'm hoping you can address, is the um, overuse and uh, very expensive and harmful use of administrative segregation or uh, solitary confinement, in which people are locked up for 23 hours a day with very little human contact. Um, around the country, research has shown that this is uh, very harmful. People are being released directly to the streets from that kind of setting. Um, and that there are other things that could be done that are much less um, extreme. And I was wondering if you can comment on what Texas may be doing on this front. Thank you very much for that, Doctor. Um, serving as Vice Chair of the House Committee on Corrections, uh, I do uh, reserve some time for me to go out and actually go into the units. Um, administrative SEG has been a topic of a lot of the, my colleagues, uh, not only on this panel, but my legislative colleagues. Um, I want to think over the next few months, you're going to see, we've talked with our, our, our management of TDCJ, and you're going to come, they're, they're going to come to you with some, some ideas and some provisions that they've already put in place. But it's an issue that we're very much concerned with because it goes back into the issue of um, mental health and the idea that a vast majority of these men and women will uh, be in our communities one day. And we're concerned about their reintegration into our society. So it is a work in process. And um, obviously, you'll be involved again next session in this program. If I may put in a little bit of that, please. Yes. I've been there. And the guys that are in Ad Seg, they just don't go out and willy-nilly pick people to be back there. Think about the folks that are there. They're there for a reason, 99 times out of 100. What would probably work better than just paroling them from SEG is have one of these reentry programs for putting them back into general population gradually. Yes. Add SEG is a wonderful tool in a strange sort of way, the same way that the penitentiaries help keep our community safe. Add SEG keeps general population safer. Um, it's not a bad thing all the time, but it definitely has room for improvement. Yes, and I think that those are some of the um, uh, provisions that you'll see yeah. TDCJ discuss in, in upcoming hearings and next session. I'll take one more, and then we're out of time. Our, many of our communities uh, find that 
are significant challenges with increasing homeless populations uh, come out of prisons. What can we look for in the next uh, legislative session in terms of improvements in planning for reentry so that people have identifications, they don't get released to homelessness, uh, they have treatment plans, etc. The solution is going to be in TDCJ's legislative appropriations request. Mm -hmm. They're asking for additional halfway housing, which is only, I'm just, that's not the solution, but it's just a little step forward. Um, and in terms of housing, we're going to have a bill that um, um, Symphonia Thompson, Representative Symphonia Thompson, filed last session, and she will file again, that uh, encourages landlords to provide, to give um, second chances to individuals that need to, um, you know, to rent their, their homes. But uh, there hasn't been a lot done when it comes to, uh, you know, making sure that they have sustainable housing options the way that they should. And, uh, you know, we were recently at a meeting with Mr. Livingston, mm -hmm. uh, you know, our, all of us in representative, and we looked at their LAR, and there's definitely room for improvement when it comes to that. The challenge they have is that, you know, it's $6.8 billion already, and that's a huge chunk of the budget. And in order for us to make room for things that actually, you know, for reentry programs and so forth, we need to minimize the number of people being in the system so that hopefully we can use some of those savings to beef up the services that, that, you, uh, that you outlined, for example. I'm afraid we're out of time. Um, good questions from the crowd. And let's maybe have a round of applause for the panelists. Okay, thank you so much. Good stuff. Yes, sir. Thank you. In, a, in about 20 minutes or so, there's the session on inside the Texas Supreme Court. Yes, I have. I thought that went well. I hope you did.